Welcome to To Know the Love of Christ. Welcome back. Here we are, chapter three. As a recap of chapter two, last week we talked about that chapter being a warning specifically to the priests. And we discussed a little bit of the covenant uh, with Levi and the Lord. We discussed the Lord of hosts, how it's mentioned in this book quite a bit, actually. And we also went through how um, God calls him out on profaning his covenant. And, of course, they are replying back with, how? How did we do this? How do we do that? We talked about the institution of marriage and its um, importance to God. So now that brings us into chapter three, which is a really good chapter. Stephanie's going to read it for us. All right. And as usual, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Chapter three, verse one. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, I the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it may not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So here's another um, stern 
talking to from God. But it's giving glimpse of hope. Mm -hmm. There at the end. Yeah. But like it starts off, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way for me. We know this for certain Mm -hmm. that it is John the Baptist because of Mark 1, 2 and Luke 1, 76. Um, It says that John is the messenger from God that will prepare the way for him. I mean, Jesus himself says it in Matthew eleven ten and Luke seven twenty seven. It starts off with hope. You're right. By the time I read to the end, <laughs> I was just thinking about the end of it. It does. It does start with hope, um, which that's the way that the first verse reads. But then the second verse is, but yeah, <laughs> is very heavy. Yeah, very very, very heavy, and um, it's the anchor verse for the whole book. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap, which fuller's soap is launderer's soap. So some translations, some versions are going to say like lie or like bleach. Also, I notice it says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. God's timeline is different from ours because he's saying suddenly and you would think, It's going to happen right then and there because suddenly for us, that means it's quickly. But, you know, we know that there's 400 years before there's suddenly. So 2 Peter 3, 8, you know, it says, But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So, like, our timeline is different from God's timeline. We can't. It's not that he's lying here. No. But to him, it's different than us. Right. And I think about David when and Abraham and all the promises that are made. And David's told that, you know, he'll have one sit on his throne. David's not alive to see that at all. Not yeah. even close. It's so far distant. And I think there is this principle within the Jewish nation that doesn't ring true for everybody today. We aren't as concerned with lineage. The Jewish nation, like that would be horrific to them. For them to die out and, you know, not have an heir or a, um, I'm trying to think of the word for it and I can't, a descendant to carry on the line, to carry on the name. And it was very different culturally, of course, I think, than it is now. Now, there are families that feel that way. Like I said, my in-laws felt that way about us having a boy at some point. Um, But historically, for the Jewish nation, it was a big deal. It was. And so this promise would have been, I mean, it, it's huge to begin with, but to them it would have had a very deep connection. It would be very meaningful. And so um, to them it was enough to know that God had promised that. You know, we, we live in a society of instant gratification, and it, that doesn't even, my brain can't even really fathom that, like being okay with a promise that's not going to happen for 20 generations. Mm-hmm. But like the, that whole, the next part of that verse when it says, the, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, this is that promised Messiah, like that mm-hmm. king to sit on David's throne. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So it's another promise, and it's another promise that is kept because, you know, we read of it, of course, in the Gospels. And also another thing, thing about, you know, because I got hung up on the whole Lord of hosts last week, you know, I realized 
you know, Joshua 5, 13 and 15, when he meets the commander of the Lord's army, he's like, he's the commander. He's the Lord of hosts. He was the commander of the army. Um, so that promise of he is coming and then it was Jesus and then the promise of the Messiah coming, the commander of the host. It's like one perfect circle. You know, it's a promise that's going to be, that's kept. And it's a promise that he is coming, that we know he's going to keep that promise because he's never broken a promise. So verse two, it starts off with the big contrast, but, but Mm -hmm. who can endure the day of his coming, who can stand when he appears. So at first you think, Ooh, that's kind of scary, you know, but it's really comforting. It's a challenge. It's a personal challenge to live up to his expectations, you know, and it's not burdensome expectations. It's not unachievable, but they are high standards that he wants us to live by, you know, for he is like a refiner's fire and full of soap. Like you mentioned earlier, um, He's going to make sure, because a refiner's fire burns off the gunk off of the raw silver and gold and other precious metals, and it makes it perfect. And the fuller soap, like you said, is like bleach. It makes it white, because I think it's maybe in Revelation. Or no, when he's up on the mountain, when he's up on the mountain and he gets transfigured and... I think it was Peter that describes it as, or maybe it was John. He was brighter than any fuller soap could make his clothing. Yeah. Maybe it was the transfiguration. Anyway, it was <laughs> at one point it, they're describing Jesus as being whiter than white. And um, it's something that needs to be done. That's not easy to do, but it's a personal challenge in verse two. Yeah. And it's not, you know, when we think about, refining it's not really a pleasant process Mm -mm. it's very painful but that that idea when we think about trials and what trials do for us you know god puts us through the storm knowing that we won't be the same when we walk out of it and it is a sort of purification i think i've brought that up more than once about romans 8 28 it's not that he's going to make us feel happy about all the trials that we go through where it says you know all things work together for good to those that love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. And it's more of the idea that God is going to use those to make me look more like Jesus as I go through those, because that's what I'm supposed to be doing anyway. I'm supposed to be reflecting his light instead of being my own light. I'm supposed to be showing his love, not, I mean, that is shown through my love, but it's not about me. It's about him. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gets at the heart of that. I mean, he gets at the heart. That's what it is. You know, no matter what you do, if it's not coming from the heart, it's pointless. We know that from 1 Corinthians 13. But yeah, I mean, I thought of also for verse 2, Psalm 130, verse 3, says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? I think it's more of a posture thing. Like, who can measure up? Who can, Mm -hmm. like when Jesus comes... And we see the way he lived his life. Who could possibly do that? Who can be able to stand and say, you know, I meet the mark? No one can. You know, as it says in Psalm 133, you know, if he marks iniquities, who can stand? None of us is 
pure. None of us is blameless in the sense that, you know, we've all sinned, Romans 3.23. And so through his life and through his perfection and his sacrifice, we are washed and we're continually washed, you know, First John. And so as it's continually cleansing us, we can stand. But look how he says it's, and he will purify the sons of Levi, which are the priests, right? Mm-hmm. And refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So in the immediate sense, it's going to be the priest that's going to finally do what they're supposed to be doing. But I was thinking, you know, in the future, because he's talking about sending his messenger and being, you know, delighting in the messenger of the covenant. Jesus purifies us, and then we bring offerings of righteousness to him. Verse 4 says, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. And I was wondering, why why is he saying this? Malachi is a prophet to Judah. Yeah, okay. So I was thinking, okay, so the offerings uh, in righteousness, you know, then the offering of Judah, like the offering of Judah was Jesus because he was the lamb that came out of Judah. And Jerusalem, it was the city of the great king, which they would have known it as David, but we know it as Jesus. So it's like the then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem, Jesus, will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in, as in former years. It also made me think of all the whoever or whosoever statements in the New Testament, most of them by Jesus, that will be refined and purified. You know, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted, like in Matthew twenty three twelve. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. And I mean, it's just, it's a whole bunch of, you know, do a search on it and you can see all the whoever statements. So like the offering is Jesus, but it's for whoever, like the priests of the New Testament, whoever can endure to his coming. Does that make sense? Yes. You sure? I think so. <laughs> I think it does. So something that I thought of while you were talking about that um, and how Jesus made it right. He was the only one who could make it right. There was nothing they could do to make it right in any way, shape, or form. But it, it made me think of a verse in Romans 9. We're going to start in verse 30. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. They pursued righteousness that was of themselves. They wanted to exalt themselves. They did, which, I mean, all of us at some point do. I mean, that we have to be humbled. We either have to humble ourselves or God will humble us. All right, so verse 5. I like how it says, I will draw near to you for judgment. Made me think of draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Mm-hmm. It was more there's so much more than just the Ten Commandments that God expects you know he says draw near to me and I'll draw near to you for judgment 
I will be a swift witness, that's scary in itself, against sorcerers, so that's right there is false gods, all right, against the adulterers, and we already discussed how he felt about that in the last chapter, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in wages, in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, which that right there is all throughout the Old Testament, that phrase, the widow and the fatherless. And against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So it's not just all that, but it's linked with and do not fear me. You can't just, you know, go through the motions, but there's got to be a reason. And it's, you know, fear him, that reverent fear, says the Lord of hosts. There it is again. Yeah. There are so many different connections there, but the one about um, those who oppress the hired worker and his wages. And we recently in Bible class went through James. And so that section, James 5, 1 through 6, where it talks about, see, it says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in these last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And since we studied that, it's like when you study, like the studies speak to each other. Yeah. And so that particular part of this verse really stood out to me and it's kind of this idea because I mean it's lying but on top of it here in James like basically they're the things that they own they don't even need they are going bad they have held back the wages of those workers instead of giving them what is rightfully theirs but what they would actually need to survive and feed their families we know Culturally speaking, back then they were paid a daily wage and it fed them for that day or the next day. When you keep it back by fraud and you just hoard it and they are piling up and they are corroded and moth-eaten, you have so much you cannot even use it, but you would rather hold on to it than to let someone else have what they need. And I think tying it into the last part of verse 5 and where they don't fear him, like that is a a whole other level of deprivation in your soul that you are so stingy and greedy and self-absorbed that you would rather watch your stuff rot than give it to someone who needs it. But it reminds me of the last chapter in chapter two, when we talked about that a little bit with the priests and how they were charged with giving information I think guarding. We yeah, guarding it, but also like they were holding things to themselves or they were skewing things and perverting and profaning the worship of the Lord in the process. And I mean, we'll get into it in verses 6 through 12 about robbing God. So I'm going to stop there. <laughs> but it does connect in my mind. All of it connects. In 6 through 12, I was like, I don't get this. And then I read verse 12 and I'm like, oh, because I kept reading and studying. I'm like, I don't, I just, I'm not seeing it except for their little whiny, you know, verse eight and nine. Like, how, how have we done this? How would, you know, so 
If you want to elaborate on 6 through 12, and then I'll just mention my 12. (laughs) He says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And to me, verse 6 shows us God's character. You know, we're told several other places. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Um, 1 Samuel 15, 29 says at the end of that verse, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Hebrews 6, 18. To me, it's like the flip side in verse 7. And it says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of, the, says the Lord of hosts. And it's almost like, I haven't changed and neither have you really like you have the potential to change but you haven't changed you're the same as your fathers always running away always breaking promises not worshiping me like you should and so it's it's a I haven't changed I don't change but you're very (laughs) (laughs) wishy-washy yeah and then he goes into this back and forth Past this, he goes into a couple verses here that I think is just absolutely beautiful and talks about the whole nature of God, where he's basically saying, repent from what you're doing, do the right thing. And then he says, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. So it reminds me of some of the things that David prayed in the Psalms about testing him and knowing his heart and looking for any wickedness within him which made me think about how he's a man after God's own heart. God is not afraid of being tested. You know, he is not afraid of being examined, and that's the way that truth is and the way that love is. It never minds being examined or put to the test. And in the way that we are to be like God, and God is love, I think that's an application for us. We should be able to withstand testing, especially from those outside. But he says, you know, put me to the test, And see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. And where you see like words like therefore and then and um, for this reason, those are really important to note because it's a connection there Mm -hmm. from what I read like they were complaining because of this curse and they were acting like we can't praise you because we're cursed there's some kind of that devourer it was some kind of pest or pestilence that was going on with their soils and so they were acting like well we can't really do what we're supposed to we can't give the full tithe because we're not getting what we need but what God is saying is he's flipping that on its head and saying no because you weren't doing what you should now you have been cursed but if you correct it then I will open the windows of heaven and pour out blessings on you basically it made me think about Ecclesiastes or Ephesians not Ecclesiastes we've done both though (laughs) Ephesians where it talks about him doing more than we could ask or even think to ask yeah Um, I mean God's going to provide for us when we seek first Matthew 6 seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you There should never be a point in our life where we say, "Mm, I can't serve God because I'm limited. No, you can always serve God and you are called to serve God and he will give you what you need to serve him. 
That's what I was thinking with verse 12 when it says, then all nations will call you blessed. So I thought the same thing with the pestilence or whatever, all nations were going through the same thing. Maybe it was a drought. Mm. Maybe it was the devourer, which they think is like a locust, like you said. Um, So the same thing was happening everywhere because the Lord points out that if they return to him, like in verse 7, he will again bless them so that all nations will notice that there's a distinction between his people and the rest of the world. Because it says, like, for your land, for you will be a land of delight. You know, it's like, you're going to be set apart if you do this. So, like, I'm going to rebuke that re- that little creature thingy, pestilence, whatever it is. I'm going to take it away from you so it don't doesn't destroy the fruits of your soil in your vine in the field because you know as we go on we're going to see he continues that train of thought but of course you know verse 13 your words have been hard against me says the lord but you say (laughs) here we go again how you have said it is vain to serve god what is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the arrogant, blessed, evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. This is such an ecclesiastical statement. <laughs> like, this is vanity of vanities. Yeah. What's the point in serving God? Whereas it was different than... Yeah, without any God focus. Right. But this this response is definitely back up in that section that we were just in. You know, it's vain to serve God. What's the profit? And here, right before that, he was saying, you know, if you do what you should, I'll bless you. The audacity here just, I don't know, that just hit me a little differently just now. So like verse 16, then those who fear the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. So it's not all of them. No, it's a different. This is a break in the chapter, really, which is weird. Like, it's weird to me that they would put the breaks where they did with this. Mm -hmm. But we've talked about this before, where like a section goes really with the next passage. So when we pick up in the next episode in chapter four, it'll connect really well with this last section. But this is a completely different feel here. And it's a completely different group of people. See, but I didn't take it that way. Really? Yeah, because like. It's like, then those who feared the Lord. So it's like, not everyone's going to do it. It's just those who choose to. Hmm. You didn't take it that way? No. Because like, then, you know, those who fear the Lord spoke but with But it one says, another. feared the Lord. Yeah. Because that's what he says earlier, right? Yeah, I'm talking about the ED on the end of the fear. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Not those who fear the Lord will speak with one another. Right. But I'm saying is as a result of what he's telling them, like Hmm. those who feared him, like, uh uh-oh. See, I felt like it was a completely different group of people. Like there's a remnant. Yeah. But within those he's rebuking, Hmm. that's how I took it. Like he's talking to all of them at at this point again. And those who, you know, heard, like the Lord, those who paid attention and like, the fear of God was put in them, basically. Hmm. You know, they heard what he said and like, ooh, maybe I should turn back to him and do what I'm supposed to do. 
I mean, it's possible. I'm not saying it's not that. I'm just saying that is not what I got. Hmm. But that's interesting. <laughs> they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So once more you shall see the distinction. So there is going to be a difference. It's not just being in name only to be God's people. You know, there are actions that must be taken. There's repentance, there's obedience, there's a commitment to following him and being and serving him. And the difference is, like he says here, is between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves, that's action, serves God and one who does not serve him. You know, you don't, you're not serving him. You're not, you're choosing not to do what he wants done. Hence the whole book. Makes me think of James too, about being a hearer, not, or about being a doer and not a hearer only Mm -hmm. for sure. But there is always a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And I think sometimes we kind of get the attitude that they had in verses 14 and 15, like, why am I even doing this? So-and-so down the road is living a completely wicked life, isn't following God, and is being blessed tenfold. Um, And like I mentioned before, there's that verse that says that it rains on the just and the unjust. So, I mean, there are going to be people that have physical things, but those aren't the blessings in Christ that our soul longs for. And that's the thing. As humans, we are created to desire those things. Even people that are physically blessed will feel an emptiness in their lives without God and Jesus. There's just no way that they don't. Even if they don't know exactly how to pinpoint it, it's there. All right. Well, that's chapter three. Where do you see the love of Christ? I see it in verse 10 where he says, you know, basically do what you're supposed to put me to the test and see if I won't bless you. And the fact that, I mean, this is the almighty creator who made everything and could just smush us under his (laughs) massive thumb, basically, um, metaphorically speaking. But the fact that he, I mean, you see his patience there. I mean, they have tried and tried him again. And just the fact that he's so patient with us and he doesn't mind being tested and that he does open the windows of heaven for us and pour out his blessings. And I don't think we appreciate it enough or realize it when it's happening. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty, And at the point that something gets taken away, we're like, oh, that's right. <laughs> that was from God. Or, you know, we have something new into our lives and it's very apparent that it's from God. I see it all over. <laughs> well, I, I like how we get to see his sneak preview, like his peeking in, you know, with the refiner's fire and the fuller's soap that he, there he is. He was a promise made and a promise kept. Mm-hmm. And how it brought me back to Joshua and the commander of the Lord's armies and just just to see him here in the midst of, I know it's not exactly seeing his love, but seeing him throughout this chapter more than the last two chapters. And it's almost like, cause you mentioned last 
the last episode how um, Jesus would speak to the Pharisees. You know, it's it to me he's being personified in this. Like it's it's him talking to them more so in this chapter than the other ones. And I know it's not exactly where I see his love, but I see him, you know, peeking through the hem- heavenly realm before he finally does come. I don't. Know. Not exactly the love of Christ, <laughs> but I mean that's that's how I see it. I see him becoming more, his face becoming clearer, so to speak, talking here. Is that acceptable? I think it is. <laughs> I think it counts. I do. I think it's counting. All right. So thank you again for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to contact us. We would love to study with you or connect you to someone local to you. As always, we hope that you will seek to know the love of Christ in your life. Until next time. Bye. Bye. You can reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram. We would love to hear from you. And be sure to click like and share this episode with family and friends. In doing so, you're sharing the love of Christ.